Welcome to Sound Mind, the podcast dedicated to thoughtful, compelling conversations with musicians about music. I'm Cameron West. I experience a number of great joys making this podcast, one of which is meeting someone for the very first time and recording a conversation. I had never met Chris Wettstein or Rob Knopper or Beach Carpen before speaking with them right here on Sound Mind, but Another experience I've had is speaking with someone I've known for a very long time, and because of the format, hearing that person with fresh ears. That too is really remarkable. And my next guest is one of my most prized and important musical mentors, Ed Carroll. This episode will be another experiment, a two-part episode that I feel is absolutely worth it. Ed is one of the world's premier trumpet players, was principal of San Diego Symphony and Rotterdam Philharmonic. He's since stopped playing, but maintains a formidable bi-coastal teaching schedule here in the States. If that sounds like a difficult commute, that teaching schedule is actually scaled back from his previous bi-continental teaching schedule. And we talk about all that, his positions at CalArts and Bard, and his previous appointments at the Royal Academy of Music in London and the Rotterdam Conservatory. And I don't have any reservations in saying that Ed is among the foremost trumpet teachers in the world. He is, if you haven't figured out, the father of Chris Carroll, who I had on the podcast episode, Should I Join the Union? And keeping with the flavor of that episode, Ed and I talk a lot about how to make a living as an artist in 2018. I must admit, I had a difficult time naming this episode because we touched on so many subjects. I chose shaping our artistic identity because our conversation revolved around the evolution of Ed's artistic career, the evolution of his students' artistic careers, and what we can all do moving forward, but we touch on a lot more. And so here is part one of my conversation with the ineffable Ed Carroll. Right, Ed, thanks so much for coming on Sound Mind. My pleasure. Yeah, happy to be here up in Finberg House at Bard, back in my alma mater. You have quite a place here. <laughs> it's, I have quite, yes, I'm, I'm the host of Finberg House, but I do stay here when I'm here, and it's beautiful. It's really nice. Well, I need to grill you a little bit live on air because uh, before we scheduled today, to talk on the podcast, you told me that you didn't think you were interesting enough to come on Sound Mind. What What's this newfound bashfulness? It's not bashfulness. Um, I actually listened to the Jeremy Denk interview, Yeah, and he's terrific, and he had so much to say, um, and he's eloquent, and I thought, oh, I have to be in a lineup with Jeremy. Now, I, there have been some others that I've been aware of before that I could hold my own with, but I don't know if I'm in the same class as, as, a, as a speaker as Jeremy is. We'll see. Anyhow, it's not bashfulness. Well, I will say it's, I don't want to say that it's rare that you find a musician who's smart, but it is rare where I have to decide. He's one of the most talented pianists alive, I'm sure you'd agree, and he's at least as smart as he is great at piano. I mean, would you agree with that? Well, yes, and, and hopefully the two will always go together. Yeah. You know, uh, many of the, the greatest musical practitioners, composers, um, performers, have been amongst the most well-educated people that I've met and are eloquent in, 
in, on a number of subjects and not just music. But I thought he was great in the, that particular interview. So Yeah, I'm kicking myself because I forgot to ask him about his MacArthur Genius Grant. <laughs> right. I can't believe I was walking home from that conversation and I just went, ah, because I, I forgot to bring it up. But maybe it's a good thing not to point out that musicians can be smart sometimes. Well, I hope not. But, um, and, and in regards to the Genius Grant, I turned mine down. Oh, yeah, Because I, I just thought that you it was... You just walked away. It was, it was a little bit overboard. A little gaudy. Yeah. A little gaudy. Um, you're, a humble, you're a humble man, as we right. know from your email about... I would rather, I would rather fight for my money than, yeah. than just be awarded my money. Well, I have to reassure you, because I don't have so many people on the podcast with their own Wikipedia page, but you are among the chosen few. I, I, I was knocked out that there's been a Wikipedia page for a long time. And when it first appeared, I was astonished that somebody would create a Wikipedia page. Why are you astonished? Well, because I'm quietly doing what I do. It turns out it was created by a former student who feels very strongly about Wikipedia as, a, as an asset. But it was created back in the days where everyone doubted everything on Wikipedia. And actually, much of what he said was, was non-verifiable. And I didn't want to, to chime in with it like this. So it's been edited many times and usually edited downwards. You know, right. things taken out because there has to be... We've seen this in journalism in the last 10 years. Well, if there is journalism anymore, that you know we should always have two verifiable sources. That's true. And Wikipedia does prove to be a great source more often than not. And I can understand and agree with the fact that your student sees it as a reliable source, even if they brought up certain things, which I actually want to bring up, that are written in your Wikipedia page. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Sure, I want to verify them, in fact. All right. Did you start Trumpet? Because somebody came by as a door-to-door salesman. That's that's such an old, well, well-worn story. But yes, really, it's true. Because um, I thought that was bullshit when I read it. Yeah, you would. But I was six years old, and back in those days in suburban Chicago, Lion and Healy, the the famous harp maker and major music store in Chicago had satellite stores in in various places and I grew up in Oak Park, Illinois and there was a Lion and Healy store there and they would send people out literally saying reading from a from a cue card hello madam do you have a son or a daughter that would like to play a band instrument because there were uh, there was no other way, I suppose, back at this point, this would have been 1960, and to to advertise what you're doing, handbills, door to door, big road signs, but they weren't going to do something like that for this. The internet hadn't been conceived of, I would assume, let alone created. Yeah, those stores now have all gone away. They've all gone online, or they've disappeared, because. You don't have the population of people that are actually walking into the stores anymore. And it's just with the the rents that they're paying in, in, in Manhattan or even downtown Chicago, 
Um, I don't know if Line and Healy is still there or not. I know that the satellite stores, uh, the one in Oak Park, dissolved a long time ago. But as, as a way to get the word out, they would literally go door to door. And so you picked trumpet among various instruments that these no, people it, were advertising? It, it's or did it's this even worse than that, Cam. It's, it's, it's more sordid than that. I had never heard of most of the instruments that would have been on the list. And they asked me what I wanted to play, and I said clarinet. And the man said, cornet, yes, we could do that. So you did it by accident? Totally by accident. Did you know that I started trumpet by accident too? Is that true? Yeah. My dad is a rock and roll drummer. Right. I'm sure you know that. Was a drummer and always wanted to learn to read music and he never did until much later in life and he suggested I join band to learn to play snare drum and learn the quads and everything, the, the whole marching band gambit. And my name is at the end of the alphabet and all of the percussion slots, there were six available. They wow. all got filled up and I had to pick from trumpet and whatever else was left. And so that's how I got started Outrageous. on brass. Totally by accident, just like you. Well, I, I suspect that our stories aren't that rare. I've always believed throughout my teaching history that there are people that often become our students that really would have thrived had they been playing a different instrument. And they obviously have musical souls, but, but aren't able to negotiate their instrument of choice nearly as eloquently as they, they might have done something else. I've, I'm a closet drummer myself. And then there are also people that, that are really multi-instrumentalists and if they had been given the opportunity, may have gone in a completely different direction playing many different instruments and many different styles of music. Yeah. Um, a great example though, one of my CalArts students, Ryan Bancroft, just won the Malco competition for conductors this last, this last spring. And he was somebody who came as a freshman to CalArts. I had him for his undergraduate and his graduate study. And he came as a very talented trumpeter and became a brilliant trumpeter. But he also played the flute really well and wasn't a bad cellist and learned to play the concert harp. And so he had talents on many, many instruments. He was a good pianist. He realized figured bass from the harpsichord. And when we were deciding at the end of his undergraduate study, he applied to do more graduate work and we were trying to decide if we were going to, you know, accept him that way. And there were people on the faculty that, that wanted to send him away someplace else to study as a graduate student simply because they thought, well, he's been here with us for four years and he should get out in the world more and, and meet more people. And there, there's a strong argument for that. But I made the argument that no place else would let Ryan Bancroft be Ryan Bancroft and allow him to play all those instruments and do all those different things. He was deeply into African drumming and dance. Was he at CalArts when I was in high school? Probably. Yeah, because I seem to remember a flautist and trumpet player who was in your studio when I yeah. was there. And he may have even played flute 
on a recital, a, a sort of brass recital at CalArts. Oh, I'm sure he so. did. I, I remember Peter Evans one time was visiting us, the amazing improviser, genius trumpet player. And um, Ryan was in our concert building, which is right down the lawn from my, my studio. And I said to Peter, you know, Ryan's rehearsing Mysteries of the Macabre of, of Ligeti right now down down in the, the Wild Beast for a concert later tonight. Let's go down and hear him. And he said, oh yeah, I'd love to. And we went down there and he was doing a setting. It's a setting for trumpet, piano, and percussion. And we had a pianist who also played percussion pretty well like this, who made a different setting than the published one like this. And we walked in and here's Mysteries of the Macabre. It's in the middle of the piece and Ryan was playing it on flute. and sounded great and in fact maybe the piece works better on flute than on the trumpet at any rate he was and peter was you know i thought he was a trumpet player well yeah he is well, what's he doing I'm saving his chops for tonight you know um <laughs> that's a good tactic yeah well if you have you know multiple skills as he had but then he found he became the obvious candidate by the time he finished his master's degree to to study conducting and he went off to Scotland for a short time and then to Amsterdam and honed his conducting skills um, and then won this brilliant competition. And it comes with 25 orchestras and there have been another 25 orchestras that have, have contacted him since and his career's made now. Yeah. Um, but because of his... But what I was referring to before are people that maybe will have a career as a, an instrumentalist, but maybe it should be on something else than the instrument that they've chosen. Have you ever taken someone aside and actually told them, look, you should be playing drum set right now? No, I haven't gone that direction, but I have gone trumpet to the French horn. This is somebody who came to my summer course, um, a Canadian who came to my summer course as a trumpeter, and she was a pretty good trumpeter. She was doing all right. She liked to play flugelhorn and played a little bit downstream and favored that tenor voice more than the soprano voice of the trumpet. And just looking at the way she was set up, I suggested, have you ever thought about this? And she said, no, why are you suggesting? And I said, well, you just seem like more of a hornist than a trumpeter to me. Um, and the world needs hornists and God knows the world doesn't need more trumpet players. Um, and <laughs> what do you mean? She contacted me, you know, shortly after and said, "Yeah, I've I've borrowed a horn and I'm having fun with it." Um, so I invited her to come out to Cal Arts, actually, and she stayed there for a couple of years. Then she moved to UCLA because she wanted to be part of a larger horn class, and she ended up finishing a couple of degrees and going out in the world and traveling and playing, and now she's doing a doctorate someplace in horn. And she's a full-fledged hornist, and I think probably a much better hornist. We don't have crystal balls, we don't know, but maybe a better hornist than she would have ever been a trumpet player. 
It's a really tough thing to figure out. I do find that whenever horn players pick up trumpets, there's almost a hilariously warm quality to it. And then when a trumpet player picks I, up a horn, they have all this technique and no tone at all. That's right. No, no sound. They have high notes, but it, you don't want to hear those high notes. Is it a personality thing, too? I already know what your answer is to this. But it does seem to be a little bit of the Philip Pullman, Animal Damon thing, where your <laughs> instrument is almost waiting for you to pick it. It well, chooses you. Yeah, I, I would argue in the best case, your, in, your instrument does choose you. On the other hand, what you're describing at Hart High School or before, you know, in Newhall, the percussion instruments were taken. So you were given something else. Yeah. Um, and it just turned out that it was fun and I liked it and... It was totally an accident, and I have, of course, teachers like Julie Landsman, where she went to the Met and sat there with her glasses and saw the horn and said, I'm going to play that, and I'm going to play where they're playing. I'm going to sit in the Met and play that instrument, and then they never gave that up. And I, most people I talked to just fell, tripped and stumbled into French horn, but I'm assuming with other instruments, too. Well, Julie, Julie and I were at Juilliard together, and I remember her as a young hornist, and there were a couple, ah, more than a couple. Actually, that was a very strong class that, that Jimmy Chambers had at that point. And they were all focused, wonderfully focused, at developing their technique and their careers. And yeah, Julie landed in the, in, in the Met at a fairly young age and stayed for a long time. Yeah. And played uh, through all of those Levine years, um, played sensationally. So, yeah, I think she found her voice. Um, I stumbled into mine. You stumbled into yours. Yeah. I see nothing wrong, though, with making a mid-career mid correction or mid-study correction that if you suddenly discover that you, you're intuitive with the piano... Why not become a pianist? Or yeah. if you're intuitive with the, with the cello or the violin, why not do a singer? I think it, we have this really stringent identity as musicians that people don't have when maybe they major in math. They're just sort of happy mm. to land a job that has a salary and has benefits. And maybe it wasn't exactly how they imagined it. But as musicians, you talk to so many people that have this overwhelming anxiety that if they don't end up at a certain place at a certain time that they've somehow failed or they're behind the mark. Yeah, I, I, I doubt if, if there are many people at a young age that decide they want to become a string theorist, you know, mathematician. However, I, I think that there's a, a social element for younger kids who want to play music. They want to do it because, you know, they want to be with their friends. They want to have something they're collaborating with. And, of course, gifted men, and in this country, gifted women that are gifted athletically have that in their sports teams. But then people that aren't as gifted athletically find that that culture, that that environment that club, if you will, you know, in playing in the band or in the orchestra or whatever. And it's a nice thing. I, I've always wondered why 
a young person would choose the piano um, because it's such a solitary instrument. Or perhaps, you know, they're Glenn Gould type of personalities and they want to, to have that isolation and where their genius can percolate. Uh, percolate. I, I don't know. It's so impossible. I was talking to my friend who's a piano teacher and a very good one, and I play piano and I've had a lot of piano students and teaching a kid a trumpet or a horn is so easy because they can't keep it off their face. They're so eager to just make a sound on it and with piano I've found the opposite. It's, it's tough to get someone to pay attention to it. Mm. It, it almost seems not everyone wants to. On the other hand, you could play a note and it's gonna be, if your piano is, 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 yeah. is tuned regularly and has regulation, um, you're not gonna miss the note and it's going to be in tune. Yeah. And then it's what you do with it that becomes the mystery um, where you can hand a trumpet or a horn or a trombone to a, a young kid like this and some of them can't make a squawk on it, you know? It's true. And it's hard to explain how to make a noise on it. It's really hard. Yeah, I guess. Um, I, I hardly remember. Uh, yeah, that. that's the problem. It's like, I don't, I don't think about how to buzz, really. Right. Um, but I want to get into your teaching and how you teach. And I want to start with the fact that we talked about how you started trumpet. And I want to talk about how you stopped playing the trumpet. You're one <laughs> of few teachers that I know who decided to make that switch almost entirely to teaching and to probably primarily CalArts, right? But Yeah, well, when I made the decision, I was teaching at CalArts. I'm still at CalArts, but I was only there. I guess it was born of necessity for me and also isolation because my house where I live, where my children were raised is in Hanover, New Hampshire where there are no, the only other professional musician in the area is Bob Brookmeyer, the, the jazz trombonist and, and composer who sadly passed a few years ago. And Bob oh. and I were very tight friends. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But otherwise, ah, there's no one around. And of course, it's not like the piano. You don't have a, a, a very enriching and very large repertoire of pieces you could play by yourself. And so th there's that isolation. And then over the years, I've become a successful enough teacher that I've, I've attracted some very good talents. Through the classes that I created in Lake Placid and now at Chosenvale, students started coming to me and many of them were very gifted and became very successful while we were working together. And I was living vicariously through their techniques without having to, to practice. And I've always, I've always loved introducing things to people. As a conductor, I have no desire to conduct Brahms with the Boston Symphony. You know, it's, they're so accustomed to the core repertory that that isn't interesting to me. It is interesting to me to conduct student orchestras because there'll be somebody that hasn't conducted or performed this Brahms symphony before. And so you can introduce Brahms to them. You can introduce 
every composer really to them. And, and that becomes, oh, candy for me. Putting the music into context, and so I can talk about, you know, Brahms, where this music is from, where it moved on from, and, and talk about the continuum of the music that we're working with, and then introduce them to these beautiful moments. It's not like having to deal with a contemporary piece for the first time, which is our obligation and our joy also, but not really know, knowing if that piece is going to be deserving as a second performance or a second chance. Most of them aren't. But you have to sort through, you know, sort the wheat, the wheat from the chaff that yeah. way, and you have to go through, and it's and it's great fun, and then you're also part of the creation of the piece, and that gives it a different element with contemporary music, but but we know that when we're dealing with, you know, last night conducting Prokofiev VI and Tannhäuser Overture and the Venusberg music. Um, well, these are masterpieces, and so, and then introducing, well, it wasn't introducing, I was contributing a sectional rehearsal, they'd, they'd already found it, but um, this afternoon I'm doing Fifth Mahler, and yeah, there'll be people in that, that class that will have not been here when the Bard Orchestra played it and toured it. And so, was it a combination of this solitude in New Hampshire in this real fascination and excitement about introducing works more as a conductor, more as a, a, a music aficionado. For a long time I felt, I, I described myself as a musician and not as a trumpeter. That isn't disrespecting my instrument, it's the horse that I rode in on and, and I love it and I love its repertoire and I love the quirkiness of its repertoire and particularly I love the, the music that we're playing now on the trumpet because we're in a real golden age and people are writing very important works and they're not unknown people like they used to be. They're important composers that are contributing works to, to the trumpet repertory at this point. And so I'm very, very grateful for that, but do you still pick it up and fool around? I, you know, I'll I'll play long tones. I'll I'll pick it up and and it feels different, but it sounds good for about five minutes, and then it sounds so bad that it's just demoralizing for me. Well, that's what goes is the endurance. You always remember how to ride a bike, I think, but yeah, for me, if I take any amount of time off, I notice the endurance go first and go swiftly. Yeah, I used to be a decent golfer, and then I had to drop it because I was too busy, and essentially it's what happened with the trumpet with me, because I was so busy teaching, traveling to teach, because I've never taught very much at home. I've always been on the road teaching. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that travel schedule as well, because maybe this could be an intervention. You're traveling thousands of miles a month. Well, I, I travel because the places I travel to, I love to travel to, and I choose to travel to because they're special places. But, but it also means that you're, it was just leading me away from the, the 
discipline of having to practice every day and having to practice seriously every day. And then when you couple that with having students like I've had and have graduated that have gone on to major careers and could really play, then there was less incentive to play and less opportunity and more interest in the elements of the music. I became very, very interested in studying scores. I could study scores on airplanes, on a train, at home when I'm home alone in the isolation of Hanover, New Hampshire. And I've become pretty good at reading scores and assimilating what's there. And that became more interesting to me than, than simply rendering a trumpet part yeah. that's been played for thousands of performances. Contemporary trumpet music still interests me because it hasn't had that many performances. But, yeah, I, I kept, the, these weren't decisions. I never announced a retirement. I never told anyone I wasn't gonna play anymore. Was there a day though where you looked at your trumpet and you no. put it back in the case and that no. was it? Or was it a no. gradual it kind just, of? It just evolved that way. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I found that I was doing other things and I was doing other things that really interested me and it just became a moment of evolution. Tell us about where you travel and I know of course CalArts being the main hub. Well, when I when I left Holland, when I when I left my position in the Rotterdam Philharmonic to move to Hanover, New Hampshire to raise our kids, I was still teaching at the Rotterdam Conservatory, and I was still teaching at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And it was made clear to me that they didn't care if I was close by, that I could commute in and do these things. So now I, my family and I built this wonderful house on a beautiful piece of land in a remarkable town in a very interesting state. but. There's no activity for me there, particularly, um, as a musician. So that meant right away that I was going to have to travel. And so I was traveling from the moment that we moved back to America, I was still traveling to, to Holland every month and to London every other month. And getting on an airplane to go work seemed like a normal occurrence to me. And so I did that for quite a few years and then there was a little bit of gap time when I created the Lake Placid Institute because there was enough for me to be occupied with in doing that. But then I was offered the job at CalArts and I was offered the job not because I was a specialist in contemporary music, I wasn't then by any means, but I was a program builder. And so they wanted somebody to build a new program there a true brass class, which I was delighted to do. And then discovered at CalArts at that moment, CalArts allowed me to be a student again because I was surrounded by music that I didn't know and methodologies that I didn't know and computer music and sound design and ethnic musics that I didn't know. I was being paid to be a student and paid to teach my students within that environment. And that was fantastic, because I loved being in school. I went to a very 
wonderful high school, um, the Interlochen Arts Academy, and I was surrounded by brilliant musicians and actors there, visual artists. And then going to Juilliard, I was surrounded with the same. And it was a very rich time in my life uh, being amongst musicians that I, I looked up to tremendously and growing together, my peers were tremendous. How do you explain CalArts to someone when they ask about it? Because I always tell people that there is no school like CalArts. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's an institute. Unfortunately, we know that many of our conventional music schools have become oriented entirely towards getting a job. That they're teaching the skills necessary to win a job in the New York Philharmonic. The irony I must point out is that so many brass students come out of CalArts with phenomenal jobs. To have a broader range is very, very important. We, we tear down all the walls between classical music and jazz and, and world music and composition. All of our students compose, they all improvise, they often get into sound design. Sometimes they abandon the trumpet to become composers and sound designers, and that's all right. They evolve in the, the direction that they, they, they want to go this way, where you know, our conventional music schools are, are focused on one thing and one thing only. And I, I, I love to curate the past. I, I love doing, I'm, I'm talking about the, the experience about, the experience of introducing a Brahms symphony to somebody that doesn't know it. I mean, what a pleasure because the hard lifting is already done. We have this music, we know that it's beautiful. All we have to do is study and bring it out. We know that this library is filled with the, the most brilliant works of Western civilization. And it's harder work when we have new authors and, and new techniques and things that are very non-Western. They're sifting, there's a greater responsibility to discover what the music entails on your own. Right, but I wonder, for instance, to use Ryan as, a, as an example once again, his background in African drumming and dance, how much does that help him on the podium? I would imagine a lot because he hears, even in a Brahmsian line, he hears the polyrhythmic pulse that unifies everything. It's mentioned Brahms second. Uh, that, that was the, the piece in the finals for that competition. That the first movement was the piece that they were, the three finalists were asked to do. And I think the more ways you can look at music, the more doors that opens. And the more doors we have open, if we have the courage to step through them, the more we know about music. And this is what, even in a, a, a conventional audition for the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and you're on a jury, I remember being on, on many audition committees in, in Rotterdam, um, everyone can play. All the people that show up at an audition can play. So what is it that makes one person sparkle? 
you know, is it, are they just showing that they know the traditions or are they, what makes that sparkle? What is that magic? And maybe it's from, from just being a, a deeper musician. Does that mean they practiced harder? No. Does that mean that they can connect more dots in music? Maybe. And so that's what we try to do from my chair, what we, we, what we try to do at CalArts. I've always found that the most interesting players, much like the Bard philosophy where we're sitting, the most interesting players have a wide variety of knowledge and skill sets, but that still doesn't quite hit CalArts on the head because I feel like CalArts, you can really do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want as a creative artist. Right. Now, not as a mathematician. There, there aren't walls between the, the music school there and the dance school or the theater school or the video school, and, you know. And so you have people in the same building that founded Pixar, and, which is entirely founded by CalArts students. You might get interested in their work, they might get interested in your work, and you might collaborate. Um, we don't force them to do that. We encourage them to do that. It's a difficult moment, I have to say, in the recruitment, in the audition period for CalArts, when a young student's mother or father looks me in the eye and says, what is my son or my daughter going to do when they graduate from this place? because they're looking for results. They're thinking, I'm going to be paying a lot of money in tuition and what's going to come out the other end. And I have to look them in the eye and say, I have no idea. And that that's the point. That we're not a vocational school. We're an institute. It's like you're doing a, a liberal arts degree in the arts. In the, in the performing and visual arts. And where your son and daughter is going to take it, that's up to them. Man, that's such a tough question. And I don't really know what to tell people either when they ask about how to make a living in music. It just seems, I talked to your son on this podcast mm. and it was a phenomenal conversation, but it did get dark because we talked a lot about raising the wage floor. What do you do to make music a viable career? And it's like you said, CalArts doesn't have that vocational goal in mind. Right. It's more about the revelry and more about pursuing the, the arts you desire. Is, is there a concrete answer for how to make a living these days, for how to have the skills necessary to make a living in music these days? Concrete answer? Of course not. I don't think there ever has been a concrete answer. But I would say that the musicians that succeed in today's environment are, first of all, really skilled. They've spent the individual time honing their craft. And then they're able to evolve past craft and get into the world of art and that they are people that remain as passionate about the art as they were when they started remain students and are constantly after graduation, you know, gleaning new, new inspiration. The world needs art terribly at this point with all the 
socioeconomic climate, all the issues that are happening in, in the world today, and it's not just in American society, it's all over our planet. Oh, we've never needed art more, in my opinion, although every generation would probably say that. Thanks so much for listening. If you've been enjoying Sound Mind and would like to support it, you can find our website at CameronWestMusic.com soundmind, or you can support us on Patreon at Patreon.com soundmind.